Hi, friends. Welcome back to Dear the Americans. This month and every month, Penguin Random House invites readers to uplift Asian American Pacific Islander stories and read Asian authors. From books like Jen Frederick's Heart and Soul to Kathy Park Hong's vital new essay collection, Minor Feelings, and Asian American Reckoning to Kevin Kwan's irresistible beach read, Sex and Vanity, to Ocean Vuong's lyrical letter, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, we're celebrating the stories that make us laugh, cry, and feel seen. Uplift the stories of AAPI authors that you love by sharing them on social media using hashtag ReadAsianAuthors. Throughout the month of May, Penguin Random House is donating 15% of their site profits to Asian Americans Advancing Justice, up to $30,000. Find your next read at penguinrandomhouse.com or go to bit.ly slash readasianauthors. Really excited to uh, introduce this conversation that I had with the CEO uh, of Launch, uh, Norman Chen, as we talk about his upbringing, his unique upbringing of living in different parts of uh, America, uh, having uh, spent the earlier part of his career uh, in Asia and now back here, um, helping to create change uh, in the way that we see ourselves uh, by leveraging the power of surveys and data. Uh, and so really excited to share this conversation. And I know that there are so many things still going on in the world today. And so as, as we wrap up uh, Asian American, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month uh, this week, uh, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to so many people um, dealing with uh, COVID still in different parts of the world and, and different regional conflicts. Um, I wanted to share this conversation with Norman about the data because sometimes it really is what it's necessary for us to tell the story with people who may not want to believe some of the stories that we share. Um, and so objective science, hard fact-driven data uh, may be one of the very few ways that um, some people will listen to our stories of the pain and suffering that we've been experiencing. So uh, I encourage you to go check out uh, the website. Um, it is launch, L-A-A-U-N-C-H.org. That's two A's for Asian American. Uh, launch.org. Uh, go check out the new status index, social tracking of Asian Americans in the U.S. We'll put all the links there in the comments um, in, in the show notes for all the things that Norman and I will be talking about. So uh, big thanks to our friends at Launch uh, for providing the report and, and providing this interview. And again, um, as you're listening to us, uh, think about what you want to read or hear next and check out the wonderful titles uh, mentioned in the Penguin Random House uh, talk that I just gave. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Norman. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Uh, hope you're staying safe and healthy as we continue uh, to deal with, uh, process, and um, just try to make sense of all that's going on, not just in our uh, immediate community, but all across the world. So um, our, our thoughts go out to our, our brothers and sisters in India, uh, those in West Asia, in Palestine, and in so many other places where people are suffering and we may not hear about it because uh, one, that's just the way that news cycles and social media uh, works. And two, uh, we too uh, have a lot on our plates. And it seems like uh, a year ago, we were uh, optimistic that COVID and COVID-related things in the world would be just a summertime thing. Um, but here we are discussing this, um, continuing to discuss this um, well plus a year. And so one of the ways that I think we're going to get out of this or to really paint the narrative um, with decision makers and with um, other folks to 
objectively tell the story of our community and what we've been through is with data. And not to dehumanize any of the stories that we've heard, um, but we really have to look at it from a high-level perspective with data, with survey, and to tell a narrative um, that will get the attention of people, uh, large key decision makers who actually rely on data. So we're talking politicians, we're talking um, you know, other folks who uh, develop policy in these things and even nonprofits. They need us to tell our story in a way that they can process and they can uh, learn from. And so my guest today uh, is Norman Chen, who is the CEO and co-founder of a new organization called Launch, which is leading Asian Americans to unite for change. It is a leader. It is a group of uh, global Asian leaders. Uh, and one of their key goals is to create an annual report that will report on the status of the Asian American experience. And so um, here to talk not just about that, but about his story. And um, he's lived and worked here in both here and in Asia. And so I think he's got a fascinating, unique uh, experience and perspective as an Asian American. So uh, Norman, welcome to the Asian Americans. Great, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you doing? Good, busy. You know, this is the week we launched our status index report and we're, we're newbies to uh, activism. And so this has been a really kind of a roller coaster experience, but exhilarating and you know, um, empowering too. We see, you know, thanks to organizations like yours, the momentum that's building, you know, among the Asian American and non-Asian American community to address these longstanding issues. So we're feeling pumped and we're excited about the future. You say you're fresh to the game, but you've had some pretty, uh, not, well, everybody's important, but, you know, uh, pretty vocal people in our community uh, be there to support you and, and sort of, um, you know, shine an extra large spotlight on, on these, you know, uh, congressmen and CEOs of large companies. And so um, so I, I think we'll begin to understand a little bit of sort of how the team came about by first understanding in your story. And so um, share with us, you know, how the Chen family became Asian American to where you guys did you guys move and um, share with us a little bit about the earlier parts of your life. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. So, you know, my background is somewhat similar to a lot from that generation. Um, uh, I'm a generation Xer, kind of just after the boomers. And so uh, my parents came to the U.S. as graduate students, poor graduate students, as they remind us. Uh, and they ended up in the Midwest. My dad went to University of Minnesota. He's a gopher. Uh, my mom went to University of Wisconsin. Uh, and they were uh, in the Midwest in the early 60s and uh, studying and uh, so I was born in Minnesota. So uh, funny enough, I actually have Midwest roots, um, although I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, and I joke, the reason they met and got married is they're probably only two Asian Americans in the Midwest back at that time, you know? And so they, they, that's how they all got married. And they have funny stories driving back and forth uh, between Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I was born in Minnesota, but only lived there for a year and then moved to the East Coast, uh, moved to um, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania area where I, where I grew up mostly. Um, you know, in that area, as you can imagine, Jerry, there weren't a lot of Asian Americans there. And so I faced a fair amount of ignorance and, uh, and some, you know, microaggressions, as we call them now, kind of taunting name calling. Um, it wasn't vicious, but it did make me feel very much as an outsider. Right. And we would go to Chinatown maybe once a month just to kind of, you know, get our Asian groceries, watch a Chinese movie, eat some Chinese food. But that was a little bit of a cultural kind of reinjection uh, to kind of keep us going. But in Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, during that time, there weren't a lot of Asian Americans. And so I felt very much a minority. Um, I used to go to Chinese school as a good Asian American kids or Chinese American kids were often forced to do. 
And I remember we had a debate about, you know, let's pick, you know, being pro-American, quote unquote, or being pro-Chinese. And I took the pro-American side and I crushed the debate. You know, I said, oh, you know, you uh, uh, Americans have English, they have an alphabet, they don't have to spend all these years memorizing Chinese characters, like it's so much more efficient. Like I killed it. And I think that I wasn't what the Chinese school teacher was hoping to accomplish, but uh, it kind of just um, kind of vocalized some of the feelings I had, you know, as a teenager, like a lot of teenagers, we just all want to fit in. What changed for me, Jerry, was kind of starting to interact then more with people who were similar to me. And you hear this awakening a lot among Asian Americans. And so for me, there's a camp in the Poconos in Pennsylvania called the East Coast Chinese Family Camp, where every summer, 300 Chinese Americans would get together and just bond. You know, we'd make dumplings, we'd play ping pong, we'd do skits. And to me, that was like, wow, there's another whole another world here where everyone feels like me. And so that was the beginning of my kind of cultural awakening identity. And then when a school in Boston, right, with so many Asian Americans there kind of further confirmed and reinforced that. Um, and then I came out to California for business school and, you know, obviously loved California where I live now, but soon afterwards, I wanted to work in Asia. I think part of it was the desire again, to learn more about my culture. Um, you know, we grew up knowing that we should be proud about being uh, Chinese or Asian, but we don't really, really know and, and know what it feels like. So I went out to Hong Kong and China and I spent uh, 20 years out there working and uh, finding my, my wonderful wife, who's Japanese American, having our kids born and raised out there. And so that was a whole nother perspective because you know no longer were we in the minority, we were in the majority. And so it's a whole different feeling about uh, seeing Asians in, in leadership positions. So yeah, it's been a, you know, a, a whirlwind experience. We moved back to the US about eight years ago, Jerry, so our kids could go back to school in the US. How was that like, though? I mean, I guess coming back, right? Because you, you have the, again, unique experience of not just being from the Midwest, but being uh, from a generation where there weren't that many of you. Um, I think in, in talking to um, folks from that part of the country or uh, areas where um, there weren't too many Asians, it's almost expected. And as notice, you said, you know, the taunts came, we just expected it and it weren't. And, and so, you know, fighting back wasn't necessarily what were you going to do? It's an exhaustive fight, right? Because it's just going to keep coming. Um, your, your identity journey, it, it seems evolved, obviously, through your time in Boston and in Northern California, where not only the school population, but the neighboring surroundings were got more and more diverse. Then you spent the chunk of your life in Asia working, which again, very unique, especially in Hong Kong, where it's Asia, but with an asterisk, right? It's not the quintessential Asian experience. Um, but how, and then when you came back here, how, how did that sort of change and, and how did that inform the way you wanted to raise your kids? Um, why was the intentional decision made to come back to raise your kids here stateside? Yeah. So um, it, it was a culture shock for us coming back to the U.S. You know, and three of our co-founders from lunch had the similar experience uh, having lived in Hong Kong for extended periods of time. So, yeah, it is a culture shock because you just start to drop your guard down. You know, when you live in Asia, you, you're not conscious of being different. You're just you know, one of the masses. Uh, and it's, it's a very kind of liberating feeling. And so uh, we, when we came back to the US, we definitely had to learn how to readjust to American culture. And I remember, you know, in situations where, you know, I would act a certain way. And then I think people would ex not expect me to act a certain way because I was Asian. So perception. So, you know, I, when I came back, I was, I volunteered because I love sports to be, you know, a, a soccer coach, you know, and a basketball coach. 
And I don't think they'd seen a lot of Asian American soccer basketball coaches, you know, uh, in, in their prior experience. So I think there are some questions like, does this guy really know how to play basketball? Does he know how to play soccer? You know, what, what kind of street cred, as Marshall was saying, do I really have? And uh, it took him, I think, half a season until they saw like, yeah, he knows hoops. He knows how to get these kids to play well. And so things like that, right, which you just kind of don't even assume out, are out there, but they're, they're subtle and definitely nothing was um, malicious at all. But you could tell like we were breaking through um, stereotypes and molds that people had, had shaped in their minds. Uh, so, yeah, there was that adjustment period. But even on that, I, I think sports um, is a fascinating part of the American experience that we experience differently, right? So I participated in NJB. I participated in Little League. Um, my parents had no idea what football was, so we didn't do that. But we swam and organized things. And we were always just the participants, right? Um, you didn't see at least the more recent uh, East Asian immigrant parents either be part of the uh, the administration, the organization, the coaching, or even just to the parents who are always like the team moms and stuff, right? Like, you know, what does that mean? Like, you know, so I, I think that also f for me too sort of uh, shaped what being an American meant, right? And uh, not that, I don't think it was any of our parents' fault, obviously, right? Like they were busy trying to survive, working, um, or th th that was not a part of the way that they were raised, so they didn't prioritize it, right? Of course, we sign you up and you go, what do you mean I have to now have parental involvement? And, and now being on the flip side too, you know, I have a four and a two-year-old, I, I want to do all that stuff. But you're right, there is a significant amount of sort of um, doubt in terms of, you know, you don't question the tall white guy who coaches his kids sports. So why do you, you know, uh, project that on anybody else? And so I, I think that's really fascinating. I think the way that we participated in, in sports, organized sports as kids here in America is also very telling because of, of the way I think our, uh, some of our parents raised us too, because it was like, do it, but don't be so good that that becomes your main thing. <laughs> right. Right? right. Like I, I know, you know, uh, we talked about Marshall, a former guest on the show, and he's a coach at uh, Lake Oswego High School up in Oregon. Like he made it his job. But for one of every one of him, there's probably 10,000 other ones who whose parents said just and it's so bad. Right. Like just do well enough to put it on your resume to get into college. Right. But then don't do it like as an adult. Like, what are you doing? Right. Like go work or go study. And so I, I think organized sports is, is fascinating. And how do you view that now as, you know, you're as, as a parent of you know, a little bit older children than mine? Um, yeah. Because we learn leadership lessons doing that, not only as participants, but as organizers, too. Yeah, no, I think sports are huge. You know, you learn so many life skills in sports that apply to work, that apply to community. And so my wife and I were big sports supporters, you know, at our schools were championing for, of course, excellent academics, you know, but also a great sports program. To me, they're not contradictory. They enhance mm -hmm. each other because um, you're learning, again, life skills and sports. So, uh, you know, because our parents were not so involved, they just sent us there in the past. Like you said, I think we're a little overcompensating, Jerry, <laughs> and I have to <laughs> hold my reel myself back because, you know, I just want to live it all the time, you know, and it's it's fun, right? You're so proud of your kids. And so um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful experience. And I think sports are really, really important. And, you know, I think the skills you learn in terms of being a team captain, a team leader, 
uh, of um, exhorting your teammates on, of working with coaches in a productive way. These are all really, really valuable skills. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're big fans of it. And uh, our kids play sports. Um, and I think we're seeing in the, our generation, you know, kids now are growing up and their parents are starting to support them more with sports. Again, sometimes yeah. too much so, but there is more support, right, than our generation, Jerry. And some parents are saying, go for it, right? Yeah. Go be go take the sports as far as you can. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And, and we are now seeing though, this is sort of the um, part of what the work that you're doing with launch is bringing visibility to some of these people who are doing cool things like a Marshall, like coach Mike at UC Riverside and on the playing side too, you know, folks like Jeremy Lin and Young Hui Koo, who are not only professional, but playing at the highest levels. And sure, we'd love to see more of us doing that. And to be frank, there are, for for a lot of us, physical limitations that prohibit us from playing at certain levels because of height considerations. Sure. Um, but I, I think, you know, as we look toward sort of what does Asian American mean and, you know, uh, the path that you chose wasn't doctor, lawyer, engineer, but it was pretty, you know, uh, standard based on where you went to school and sort of the corporate path you took, right? And, yeah. And so I... I as we think about the world that your kids are, are growing up in and the world that my kids will grow up into, I think also as, as parents and as fathers thinking about what Asian American identity means for them versus what it meant for us and what's achievable. Um, and, and let's also just put it out there. Like um, we're raising them with far more privilege than we were raised with. And so survival or like you have to make money to survive is hopefully something that our kids don't have to think about. We'd like to th- we'd like for them to think about it from a holistic being a good human being perspective to be mindful, empathetic, but not an actual fear of I don't know where I'm going to get my next meal sort of perspective. And so I, I think that's fascinating. Um, but you're right. Sports does really give us life lessons. I think um, broadly speaking, um, people look up to athletes and people look up to sports organizations for guidance and because it is so visible. Um, you know, I, I recently had the pleasure of sitting alongside, um, fr- from your neck of the woods, um, uh, general manager of the San Francisco Giants, Gabe Kapler has a new foundation called Pipeline for Change. And so he wants to host, he, he's starting with AAPI. Uh, we hosted a roundtable discussion with Asian folks in and around baseball and, um, uh, fully knowing that I'm a diehard Dodger fan. He let me in the conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, and we talked about sort of what his role could be. And at because it is yes. so visible, and as you know, a, a non Asian person, but in a highly visible role in a community and a fan base that is so diverse. Um, but again, I think even with allies like that who are willing to step up and to uh, to use the pun to go to bat for us and to leverage his platform for education and for knowledge, there is a distinction between you coming on, me coming on, or somebody else coming on and telling a personal story but then also making it palatable for not only him, but uh, leagues, media, government, and other businesses to say, okay, like, I get it, Jerry, you and some other people that we see on the news. Um, I, I guess the point is only with data and only with actual credible large sets of data can we take away sort of the blaming that it could be an isolated incident theory. That's right. Right. So even though you see it on the news all the time, and, and I think also to note, we see it on the news all the time because people like Dion Lim and Saifan Kim are always in our news feeds. Yeah. And Next Shark, they're always in our news feeds. So That's we right. see it. 
but does the rest of even our local community see it? The answer is no. That's right. And so, you know, we have to almost, uh, and I think the distinct advantage um, and benefit that you, uh, Ming, Ed, and the rest of the folks at launch have is that you come with relationships, you come with a business perspective, you have to speak the language of your audience. And so um, when even when it comes to activism, we have to play on all fronts, right? There needs to be somebody who can sit in a in a um, presidential briefing yeah. and comfortably and, and speak. There also needs to be somebody equally comfortable marching with act, you know protesters the next day, but also to be able to convey these messages in a in a business friendly, not only delivery but also conversation with C-suite executive or people who have actual purses with large amounts of impact. Uh, capital that they can deploy. And, and so uh, we know launch uh, a lot. Well, I knew about it a few months ago, thanks to Ming and Ed. Um, I knew that the report was coming. The report's been fantastic and it's been shared widely, uh, most recently on the Boston Globe, which was really great to see. Um, but share with, let's go back a little bit and, and sort of where did the discussion start with you and your friends? Yeah. Um, and, and the the sort of the uh, the genesis story of how launch came about. You know, last fall when we formed, you know, first of all, we formed as a group of old friends and we've known each other over 20 years because, you know, like you and others, we're just shocked and dismayed at kind of the negative sentiment towards Asian Americans. And we just said, you know, gosh, we have to do something. We can't get to sit on the sidelines. And so we rallied. And the, and the first thing we're, we wanted to, we, we thought about doing was because of the election to get involved in the election somehow. So we work with APIA Vote, Christine Chen, who's fantastic, and I'm sure you know, and she helped us work with her to develop a campaign to get out uh, Asian American voters in battleground states. And she specifically uh, recommended that we help on Pennsylvania, which obviously turned out to be a critical state. And we help support, you know, the development of some video, um, pro video content with people like Connie Chung, Jeremy Lin, to get out. Uh, Asian American voters, and we reached 2.5 million Asian American voters. So that was a great project, but highly opportunistic. After that, we said, well, hey, what can be a little bit more strategic, more long term? And we said, well, what's really causing these hate crimes and attacks? You know, I, we, we're seeing publicity about the hate crimes, but not that many people are talking about the underlying causes of these hate crimes. And so if you do research, uh, not on Asian American studies, but on hate crimes research, and you talk to groups like the Anti-Defamation League, you know, hate crimes stem from extreme forms of prejudice, right? And what's prejudice? Prejudice is stereotyping preconceived notions of other people. So people's attitudes of someone, although benign on the surface, you know, they're just, you know, simple stereotypes can lead to scapegoating and can lead to violence. And unfortunately, we've seen this, you know, many times in history. So the key is, what are the attitudes of, Asia, of, of Americans towards Asian Americans? And uh, looking at the research out there, and not to get too far into the weeds, the last comprehensive <laughs> study, Jerry, that was out there was 2001, done by OCA. So that's 20 mm. years ago. We've doubled in population almost, and yet yeah. there hasn't been enough funding or support to do more research in how we're uh, uh, perceived by the American public in general. Um, there's been great research, as you know, by groups like AAPI Data and Pew yeah. about the details of the Asian American community, and that's so important. But we're part of a broader society, obviously. And so that interaction between Asians and non-Asians, that's what we want to understand. The attitudes, beliefs, because, you know, the glass ceiling, the racism, the discrimination, that's being involved. That involves other groups besides Asian Americans. And we need to understand the, the issues there. So 
we started talking to professors, you know, like Paul Watanabe from UMass Boston and, and uh, Gilbert G from UCLA, and they helped guide us in coming up mm. with the survey. And, you know, the reason why some of the questions are kind of startling is that we're not very academic about thinking about the questions. We're thinking about what is really key here. What do we want to know? How well are we understood? What, are we, what do people think of Asian Americans? So we came up with this wonderful list of 39 questions and we, you know, did a, a conducted a professional scientific survey with 2,766 people in April primarily and uh, just finished the report last week. And so it's really exciting for us to get out there with it. Yeah, when I read the deck, because um, we've all seen academic decks and academic research papers presented, um, and and as a former consultant, this geeks me out because it's it's presented in a way that is always sort of the uh, you know what's the key takeaway, right? Like the so what, um, and and I think how you and the team have uh, you know not only gotten the data but also how you're telling the story. Because data doesn't mean anything in and of itself. It's it is really the so what. So like you know, um, you know, one of the key takeaways from from the data is that eighty percent of uh, Asian Americans feel that they are discriminated. Okay, that might shock you for both reasons mm-hmm. um, that it's too high or too low. Mm-hmm. But you know what what is the behind it? Okay, so you know because a lot of what we're seeing, and I think um, your group is doing a great job. There are other groups that are now either forming or reforming or pivoting and you know there's a there's a lot of discussions in the community about okay like what is the coordinated effort like what is the grand big so what what mm-hmm. do we actually want to have happen right and so as you even saw um the gofundme fundraiser was millions of dollars huge and then so it's like where does the money go how do we yeah. spend it? it it has to start with data to tell us where we need the help right because i think what data allows us to do. And uh, we recently had Neil Ruiz from Pew on the mm-hmm. show to talk about his most recent research about population trends. Yes. Until we disaggregate that data set, we're going to fall into modern minority myth syndrome. They're going to ignore us because they're going to look at a guy like you and then look guy like me and say, okay, these smart East Asian guys, okay, I'm not calling us smart, but like on, on, on paper, there's some logos that might some lead some to believe that, right? They don't have a problem. Right. Right that they're educated, that they're above the poverty line, they're upwardly mobile, look at where they live. And only when we can really dig down to it, it becomes indisputable because I think before we can even think about what do we do, we have to start from a place of where are we starting. And so um, take take us through a little bit more into sort of that. Yeah. How, how did you do the survey? Who, who did you ask? Yeah. You know, um, how did you remain impartial in it? Right. Um, so that it can have credibility. Yeah. So first of all, our group is a nonpartisan group, and, and that's important to state up front. Within our six co-founders, Jerry, we are pretty evenly divided between those who lean left and those who lean right. So we have some nice, uh, slightly heated conversations internally, but we are really trying to be nonpartisan here. And so um, that was a, a first guiding principle. I think for us also, we wanted, you know, again, we're not academics per se, so we don't want to dive deep, deep, deep into just the one topic, you know. We actually wanted to do a, a landscape of Asian Amer- of sentiments towards Asian Americans. And so you see a little bit of everything here, right? You see kind of classic racial questions about Asian Americans and also even other communities of color, you know, Black Americans and Hispanic and Latino Americans, because they suffer at, in some way, ways even worse than Asian Americans. We also wanted to cover the classic Asian American stereotypes of model minority myth that you mentioned, yellow peril, perpetual foreigners. We have a few questions for each. 
you know, because there's only so much real estate we have in our survey, right? So we can't do 10 questions on one topic. We just touch upon things and then we want to do more research in the future. And then the third bucket is about Asians and media and the invisibility. And some of those were, as you know, the most stocking, uh, shocking and startling. So we try to cover a wide range of topics, which are all, I think, very pertinent to, to Asian Americans. Um, that's the second kind of guiding principle. We obviously want to do this in a very credible way. And that's you know, almost the most important thing, because otherwise, if you don't have good data, it's worthless, right? Yeah. So having Professor Paul Watanabe uh, was really, really critical. He, uh, years ago, wrote a very critical review of a study done by another group because there was not enough input from Asian American scholars in the process. And so mm -hmm. we were mindful of trying not to make the same mistake. Uh, and so getting Professor Watanabe and others involved early uh, is really a, a key foundation for our work. Um, working with a high quality research company in Savanta, research was important. And then we had a, a survey consultant guide us the whole way through. Uh, we've reached out to you know 10 or 20 Asian American scholars around the country. We had a group of Asian American research grad students, their nickname is ARG, and they provided input on our survey, you know, minutia about how we phrase the questions. Can we ask it this way? Can we make it less biased? Because, you know, in some ways you want to throw out kind of provocative statements to just get a reaction. Right. But that also doesn't really make it a high quality survey. You actually need to have questions that are reasonable and not leading people to give you certain answers. So we tried really hard to do that, um, uh, you know, and just let the data speak for itself. So. So, um, yeah. So you can see that we've gotten a lot of interesting answers, but we've tried to be rigorous along the way with the advice of experts to make sure that it's really uh, credible. So there's a lot of really fascinating insights from here. And I think one of the key things that you did was you sort of even uh, disaggregated the data by how people self-identified. Yes. And so we can see how self-perception of Asians on Asian things were, mm -hmm. but other races on us, mm -hmm. us on other races, if political ideology, geographical location of survey respondents played a role. Because again, I think to say Asian American overall, there's never a really good way, right? right. Like I think... Even even when we think about what represents us, right? Um, there's not a single food, a color, an item, a, any word That's right. other than Asia, really, that over-encompasses everything. And so um, I, I know that when we do these types of surveys, it is often done to find the answer. Mm. But the reason that you and the rest of the crew got together to launch this initiative last year and to fund it is obviously to help shed a light so that we can be better protected and better represented. Mm. And so um, what is the key overall key takeaway of what you want this impact of this survey to be? Because you have the eyes and ears of people like Congressman Liu, uh, Mayor Garcetti, uh, Dominic Eng, chairman of East West Bank. And so you have influential people who also have other spheres of influence. What is the actual, you know, what, what do you want the survey to do? And for those listening, how should we interpret the call to action for this survey. Yeah. So let me just step back a bit in terms of why we formed launch. I didn't really finish that. Um, mm. You know, we formed launch so we can create a better future for our children. That's really in a nutshell what we're trying to do. I know that's what you're doing many times in your work. And I hear that a lot. It's, it's what motivates us, you know, because we're seeing this trajectory, which is going the wrong way. And we don't want to see Asia portrayed or Asian Americans portrayed as the bad guys for, for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, we don't want our people and our community to be seen as the enemy. We don't want our cultures to be to be um, to be represented that way. So that's the overarching 
goal. And within that, we obviously want to fight racism, increase representation, and share resources. We are a group of primarily business people, uh, Jerry, and you know we're kind of in our 40s and 50s. And so we are bringing some business skills, some business networks, some resources. And frankly, what we're most, maybe what's most valuable is kind of our entrepreneurial spirit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is how, because there's so many other organizations out there doing great work and we don't want to replicate or any of that work. But a lot of times we want to piggyback, or we want to jumpstart, we want to turbocharge, we want to collaborate. For example, like with API Vote, you know, they just needed a little bit of support and funding to do this, uh, this, this, this uh, digital marketing to key uh, Asian American voters in a key battleground state. Like to us, the ROI on that is huge, right? So we're trying to find other ways we can generate high ROI. And so here, again, doing a view of the landscape, being a little analytical in the beginning, we see this, that there's a ton of great research about the Asian American community, but not a lot in the last 20 years about how Asian Americans interact with non-Asian Americans. And so here we're adding, doing the study, publicizing it, but just really trying to use it to increase understanding of the issues. First and foremost, we want our data to be shared with community leaders, political leaders, the media, et cetera, and ultimately to develop then programs based on the data that will help to address some of the issues. And we can talk more about some of the specific programs that we're coming up with. Um, The more we do the research and our work, the more we see opportunities really to increase education, to build bridges with other communities, to um, increase visibility in in the legislature and among lawmakers and in the legal profession, uh, to create a greater awareness, to uh, impact um, the media and films and TV to have a positive influence. So there are real concrete action items from the data, but our goal this year, you know, we're only six months old, we're totally volunteer, it's just to get the data out there in a high quality way and then run with it. I, I take it a step further, and, and I want to commend you and the rest of the team because it's it's more than volunteer because uh, you, you've not only put in time and energy, you've invested in this because surveys like this uh, don't happen out of thin air um, to, to get, you know, almost 3,000 people to respond to something and to present this in a way. And so, um, you know, I, I thank you and I, and I commend the rest of the team for uh, the actual invest- that investment that you've made in uh, telling this part of our story because you're right, I think... Um, we acknowledge that how complex we are. Um, you know, you, you look at any sort of population chart of Asian Americans and, you know, there, there's there's density in the top six, but then there's a long tail, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. part of this is how knowing how complicated it is to tell our collective story. Um, and, and we do need resources, um, you know, financial too, to sort of tell that narrative. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a, a large vaccine campaign, right? Trying to get uh, people vaccinated the most marginalized and the people who won't hear the news are the ones who have language challenges or language gap and access to transportation and even access to healthcare. And so um, those aren't people that, like me and you, right? Those are, are not only even our parents, but you know, people from even more marginalized Asian American communities who uh, don't have the same level of access that we do. And so well, it, it is so challenging to to share an asian american narrative um but we still have to do it and the more that we do it i think the more nuance we can get in, in telling the story and, and i guess to share with people uh everything has a meaning and whoever does your branding is is a branding genius because i'm a big fan of word-based puns and things <laughs> like that um, not only is launch signifying you know uh something you know leading asian americans to unite for change 
but status is also with two A's because we have to have two A's for Asian Americans. Of course. But it is a social tracking of Asian Americans in the U.S. index. And so I always geek out when things mean something else. <laughs> but what are some things that you learned personally, Norman, in sort of the way that people view us? Right. Um, one, thing, one thing that just stood out to me was um, adjectives to describe Asian Americans. And so, again, these are um, sort of nice compliments, as they say, uh, from nice people to like, oh, you're smart and yeah. hardworking. Cool. And there's a big yeah, one against sort of perceived religions of the Asian American demographic, you know, right. perception versus reality. What, what did you find surprising in, in uh, doing the data? Yeah, let me just, if I could, Jerry, just um, just mention one thing you brought up earlier, and that is about how we're able to fund, you know, this work. Um, obviously, besides our time and our resources, we have had uh, some support from donors and supporters, and I just want to acknowledge them. Um, mm. You know, uh, East West Bank has been great, and also BTIG, another financial services firm, and some good friends have supported us personally. So it hasn't just been us. I just want to clear up any kind of understanding there. Um, but um, but yeah, we're continuing to, to to raise money for more projects. But you know, to get back to your question, uh, you know, a lot of kind of surprises. I mean, when we framed the survey, honestly, we were asking questions that we did not know the answer to. I mean, in hindsight, you'd be like, oh, of course, you know, a lot of Asian Americans feel discriminated against, but we don't know how much uh, or how 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 what the level was. We didn't know who felt stronger about Asian Americans compared to mm -hmm. others, and so. We came in with 39 questions where we didn't really know the answers to. And so a few of the key takeaways that I have found, you know, are the following. Um, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the issue of kind of racism and discrimination, you know, we know that 80% of Asian Americans feel discriminated against. Uh, but it's also disturbing to know that 90% of African-American and Black Americans feel discriminated against and 73% of Hispanic Americans. So this is... a these, some of these issues really relate to other communities of color. And we, one of the solutions obviously is more allyship, more collaboration with those groups. Um, related to the discrimination is the respect question, right? And as Asian Americans, we know how important respect is. So only 23% of Asian Americans say that our community is respected in the U.S. And for people upon which respect is the kind of the bedrock of our identity and on our and our self uh, self identity, you know, to have only twenty three percent feel that I think is really an issue. You know, this is in our home country we feel respected, and so one of the goals for us is how do we increase that feeling of respect over time? You know, and that's another kind of long term goal. Um, despite all the publicity that has been out there about Asian American attacks and hate crimes, we were shocked to find that still thirty seven percent of white Americans. 46% of Republicans, so nearly half of Republicans, say they're not aware of the increase in hate crimes towards Asian Americans or attacks. And so shocking, right? I mean, you, know, you think maybe 20%, you know, just are not reading the news or, or in their own world, but, you know, half of a certain political party and over a third of white Americans overall. I mean, that to me is really an issue. And a significant portion of those don't think this is a problem that needs to be addressed, which is another level of concern. So that was our first bucket of kind of racial discrimination. The second one, which you touched upon, was about, you know, the model minority myths and perpetual foreigner and yellow peril. And yeah, you know, we asked, what are the adjectives you use to describe Asian Americans? And it's smart, intelligent, hardworking, and nice. I think, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, you know, I was sick of being called nice, right? I mean, that's just like such a vanilla kind of term. And um, and so to see that those are the same terms now being used to describe Asian Americans, you know, 50 years after the model minority myth has come out, just shows you that we really haven't made an, uh, much of a, 
of a unique impression on, on the public beyond just those three kind of terms. And so uh, we know the model minority myth is insidious, that it divides communities of color and it hides, like you said, the real needs and issues for many in the AAPI community who suffer economically and socially. So a, a lot of issues uh, in terms of the, the prevalence of the model minority myth. Um, the other question we asked was uh, agree or disagree that, Amer that Asian Americans are more loyal to their country of origin than to the U.S. And 20% of Americans, you know, one in five say they felt Asian Americans were more loyal to their home country or original country than the U.S. So, you know, really questions patriotism and allegiance uh, here. And, and, you know, it perpetuates this idea of the, the perpetual foreigner. Uh, so that was really, really concerning as well. Um, that's tough because we still see that, right? Like most recently that we, we read news about uh, Congressman Andy Kim and when he was in the State Department, uh, him being denied security clearance to work That's on right. Korean Peninsula issues. He didn't even ask for it. And they said no. Uh, as we celebrate APAM, uh, more people are learning about the 442nd, you know, the tens of thousands of Japanese American soldiers of Japanese descent, many of them um, who, who fought knowing they were going to die while their families were being kept in cages. It, it, it's hard to imagine. Um, it's it's really hard to, but it is true, right? And I, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier sort of this uh, debate thing at camp, and I, I remember posing myself this question years ago, uh, much younger, when tensions were relatively high between America and North Korea, and so, you know, I, I posed myself this uh, fake question of if stuff happened who would you fight for? And of course the answer has to be America, but there is a part of my logical thinking saying, if white people are going to kill me regardless, where do I have a better chance of survival? Getting shot in my back or facing the challenge head on? And, you know, not to say that I agree or advocate for anything that the other guys stand for, but from a pure survival instinct and knowing how racist our own country can be towards people who look like us many times. Like even just the thought, even just the fact that that has to be a part of my decision-making process was really saddening for me at the end of the day that, you know, it was just awful. Um, but even in that 20% that you said, right. So let's double click into that because 32% said neutral. Like that's also really saddening and only, Less than a third, 29% said completely disagree. If you ask that about uh, white people, you'd get probably almost 100%. Right. Black folks, probably same. Yeah. Hispanic, Latino, not 100%, but probably not as low as our numbers. Yeah. But, you know, so it's sort of like we're, we're always perpetually conditional. Mm -hmm. And how do we get to a point? And, and the thing that I think it's really important to note, and if we look at studies uh, like the ones coming out of Pew and other sort of population trend analyses yes. is that we continue to grow as an immigrant base, right. which means as we add new Americans, yeah. it further complicates identity because we all didn't start at once, mm. right? Like when you came to America, was at a different time than when I came mm -hmm. or when your family did versus when my family came. And so the, the way that we view our own self-identity is so different Add in the complexity of all the crap that happened in Asia that continues to happen in Asia that influences our own ethnic versus overall Asian identity. You know, we're going to have to continue to recalibrate as we go 
because if what Pew projects is right and that we're going to be 46 million instead of 23 million in what seems far away, but under 40 years, mm. what are the demographic going to have to change to? Or I guess, you know, and, and we're going to be the largest immigrant group, mm-hmm. right? We'll have to recalibrate this again. And so while I am disgusted by a lot of this data points that continues to perpetuate the uh, perpetual foreigner syndrome or ideology, it's completely not unfounded that it makes sense because as new people come, we almost early immigrants also sort of opt out themselves, mm. do we not? Because we see ourselves as guests in this country, mm. right? And and so we have to be gracious guests instead of being the audacious American that says, I deserve a place here. Right. And it almost seems that in one generation, whether you immigrate here and then your children, we continue to go through that process where there's a gap, right? Like my parents, for example, like, you know, they came here in their 30s, right? Mm-hmm. They're in their 60s. Now, they definitely Korean in America, mm-hmm. more so than Asian American identity. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way that they view policies and politics here, right? Korean perspective, right? The way that they would, you know, the way that they would have answered this survey, very different than the way I would have answered it. And yet we still check the same boxes yeah. on every single form. And, and that's what I think makes it so complicated. It's fascinating, though, and, and to me actually leads to some hope for the future. You know, I mean, one thing to your point about generations, right? My parents, Chinese American, you know, born in China, fled to Taiwan, moved from Taiwan. They hang out with almost all exclusively people with the same kind of background, right? They speak Chinese. They hang out maybe with like your Korean American or Korean parents. Um, our generation, like you, and although I'm older than you, I'm going to call us the same generation there, Jerry. But um, our generation, like we mix and mingle a little bit more. Right. And so, um, again, I married a Japanese American person, um, you know, and then we have a lot of friends who are non Chinese American. Right. Our kids, you know, when your kids get older, too. I mean, honestly, they mix and mingle with everything. And they the last thing they'll tell me about a kid is what co- what color their skin is. I mean, you know, I won't know that until I actually see them because it's not a, a thing in their mind. So it really does, in my mind, you know, improve over over time. There is more integration. Um, or involvement with other uh, ethnic and, and racial groups that the younger you go. And in our survey, we asked a question about, do, do you associate Asian Americans more with uh, whites or with people of color? And if you look at it by age, it's really telling older people associate Asian Americans as white adjacent. Okay. But now, because yeah. um, they saw really the really black white divide. Now um, the younger people are increasingly seeing Asian Americans as people of color. Okay, and so as our own, we're emerging as our own, you know, group that's taking pride and distinct from the kind of the white majority. And so again, the younger generation, I think, gives me a lot of hope to how this trend is going to be changing. Yeah, hundred percent. Because I think we talk about, um, you know, more conversations about the the future of Asian America defined by mixed race marriages. Yeah. But even outside of the Asian race, like your family, right? If, if it's if it's mixed ethnicity, we still check the Asian box on surveys, right. but your your children being mixed Chinese and Japanese American, that's a uniquely different Chinese American experience than you have had. That's right. Even my own kids, again, even though they're going to check the same boxes, it's going to be uniquely different. And so, you know, it's going to get more complex, right? It's going to get more nuanced um, because the world is changing. And I think looking at it 
you know, will America exist in 2000 years? I don't know. But looking at what America could look like in 2000 years, there's going to be no, you know, dominant group because there's going to be so much diversity, even just in the way that our families form. And so, I mean, I, I, I so appreciate what you have done with this work. I encourage folks to check it out. We'll obviously link it in our, in our show notes or just go to launch. That's uh, launch with two A's.org. And you'll uh, be able to download this uh, 43 page report. If you're a, uh, somebody who gets geeked out by data, you'll have so much fun with this. And there's an entire page, two pages of EndNotes. So if you even want to do extra digging on <laughs> where some of this information came from, we, we acknowledged some folks earlier, a few names at the top, uh, Professor Paul Watanabe, uh, Professor Gilbert G, uh, Lauren Feldman, Asian American Research Group, uh, Congressman Ted Liu, Nicole uh, Muchnick, mm-hmm. Dominic Eng, Travis Kyoto, and uh, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti. And so many others, I think. And, and that's a very diverse group of people. Um, and not all those folks are Asian American. So I think also another lesson is that as we try to come out of this with positivity and with, with hope and some direction, um, it's going to have to be an all hands on deck. And I think, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the, the things that I think are really important, which seems to get harder and harder, uh, to be frank, Norm, is how do we work with people who see the world a little bit differently than we mm-hmm. do, um, even though we have to be on the same team on, on some things. Yeah. Um, not everything obviously, but so I, I think that's, you know, we're all reckoning with it. I'm reckoning with it, you know, because I feel so strongly about the way that I think our community should be represented, um, activist wise or advocacy wise. Um, but when you see the surveys, not everybody thinks the way that I do. And, and so, and so it, it's hard, but I think it, it starts with this. Um, I, I genuinely, genuinely hope, um, more people read the report because um, the report doesn't tell you to do anything. It's a snapshot, as, as all surveys are. And based on what, how you interpret all this data, hopefully it'll change the way that you do your job at work too, in the way that you make assumptions or the way that you, um, especially if you're marketing and advertising or any sort of data-driven world, please look at this and share it with your own colleagues um, and, and, and support the work of Launch and support the work of so many other organizations that are, are coming up and about. So um, as we wrap the show, we wrap the show uh, in, in the same way that we do uh, is by asking you to share a letter uh, to the Asian American community with a message of hope and or inspiration or perspective or a charge or call to action. And so um, I'll, I'll start the letter. And if you could help us finish out the show uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about our research. We hope that this powerful new information will provide you with additional tools to go out and do the great work you're doing to champion for Asian American issues and rights. Um, We look forward to continuing the conversation, redoing the survey every year to make, to track trends over time and really having an impact on the future for our community. Thanks again. No, thank you. And to, uh, I had a conversation with uh, Ming and Ed, uh, seems like forever ago, because the world has mm. changed so much. Um, uh, but they, you know, got so excited to learn about it. Um, our, our friend Eric Toda recently joined your board. Um, he, he's coming and he's been everywhere. He's been um, everywhere. Yeah. He's, he's been everywhere. Uh, he's coming on the show soon. And um, I, I think also just overall, what's been really nice to see is everybody doing something. Because yes. there's no one right way to approach this. That's right. Um, as, as I shared earlier, uh, 
whether you're in a boardroom or on the streets, whether you, um, wherever you are, um, not everybody's primary job title can be activist or advocate, but we all have to infuse that into however we're doing. Um, really because, and I think you'd agree, like this work is so inherently selfish for me because <laughs> I'm doing this for my kids. That's right. And, and as a side effect, we make the world better. Like, but I'm singularly focused on trying to make sure that my kids and their kids can have a better, safer, and more fruitful experience of being an American mm-hmm. um, and being a human being, um, which our parents did their best That's to right. survive and to bring us to this point. And so it is now our collective job to take this baton in a different way, in a different direction. Because um, I don't think we're going to finish the race in our in our lifetime. Right. Um, the the foundation's too, too rotten for us to fix that. And so how, how do we change it marginally as, as much as we can? And um, really grateful for the work that you and, and the rest of uh, the friends at launch do. Um, good luck in, in, in your you know future endeavors. Please come back anytime there's anything to share, to update us on. Um, uh, again, just uh, geeking out over your, your branding and your word choice and the, <laughs> the, the meaning behind it all and the nuance. And so uh, thank you for spending a little bit of time with us. Uh, big shout out to Bonnie Zhang from uh, Edelman uh, who coordinated this and to... Uh, work so hard behind the scenes to make sure that this report is getting the shine that it so deserves. So, uh, Norman, I know you got a busy schedule ahead of you. Uh, thank you again for making time for us, uh, but foremost, uh, health and safety above all. And we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Jerry. Just one final note. I'm, for those of you like yourself who want to geek out, we're um, coming out with our mini site in a few weeks time that allow people to do some of their own analysis and, and, and crunch the data their own way. So uh, I'll let you do that. And uh, we can talk again after that. <laughs> All right. Data nerds, you have your warning. So get ready. We'll see you soon, everybody. All right. Thank you. That was a really insightful conversation. And I'm really glad that we were able to have it uh, to talk about how we can track uh, not just the way that we experience America today, but how others view us and perhaps how we want to change that going forward. And so uh, to all of our friends at launch, uh, Ming, Ed, Eric, Norman, and the rest of the squad, uh, thank you so much uh, for doing the work that you're doing, but also sharing a little bit of your story here with us. Uh, if you enjoy the conversation, I encourage you to share out the episode. Tag us at the Asian Americans wherever you can. Uh, on the Asian Americans right now on Instagram, you'll find amazing stories from our wonderful friends at McDonald's as we share additional Asian Pacific American stories, stories uh, with the hashtag WeAreAPA. Uh, we're going to wrap up uh, that series this week uh, by listening to an interview with both of the photographers, uh, East and West Coast, uh, Emmanuel on the West Coast and Eric Lee on the West East Coast, rather. Um, and so get excited for that. For those of you that are joining us recently uh, from APAM and from other avenues, we welcome you and uh, encourage you to engage with us. Again, uh, reach out if you can, if you want to, through the Instagram DM at the Origin Americans or simply write me an email Hello at theerasedamericans.com. As we wrap up APAM, uh, as we continue to celebrate, uh, let us not stop the commemoration and the celebration of our history, culture, and community on May 31st, but have it go on every single day of the year for as long as we have a voice. And for, long as as, and for as long as I have a voice, I will continue to share Asian American stories to leave to my kids and for all of our kids. So, Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Wish you health and safety and happiness. And until next time, this has been your host, Jerry Wan. And thank you for tuning into Dear Asian Americans.